Welcome to Light Trees and News, everyone. Pop culture, politics, and a sprinkle of trees. And I'm joined today by Meredith. Oh, hello. Oh, hello. I, I'm just going to go into it because I learned something recently that really shook me to my core. And I have not quite recovered yet. But I feel tell like me. I should tell everybody just so like maybe we can like process it together as a as a podcast family. I recently learned and I do hope everyone's sitting down who can hear the sound of my voice. And like if you're driving, maybe you want to pull over just to collect yourself after you hear what I'm about to tell you. I recently learned that Hilaria Baldwin's birthday is January 6th. And... <laughs> It really like it made sense. But at the same time, my world absolutely was turned on its head. And I just my first thought was, do you think the Baldwin family was gathered together celebrating Hilaria's birthday and then breaking news on the television? The Capitol is being invaded by right wing extremists. And did they watch it as a family in real time as it was happening? And were they wearing birthday hats? I hope they were all wearing special coordinated birthday outfits that were picked by Hilaria because of some Instagram related sponsorship she had. Oh my God. Yeah. That's what happened. And they all have their initials on it. Yeah. Yeah. (sighs) Absolutely. Somehow also like, I think they're probably all embroidered with the birth order. Oh my God. Of the children. I'm a five. I'm number five. And that's how they talk to adults and adults are like, great. Yeah, exactly. Normal, normal and healthy. This whole family, top to bottom. No notes, Baldwins. No notes. Yeah. I just have to imagine that uh, at some point things got bad enough that Alec just looked at her and was like, you can drop the accent. Mm -hmm. And she's like, well, you could stop shooting people on set. And he's like, no deal. And she said, no deal. And that's their marriage. <laughs> that's yeah. That's why it works, guys. You're you're an outsider looking in, and you're like, how do they manage this? You're on the inside in a hostage situation, masquerading as a marriage. You you get it, you know. You just get it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I just want um, everybody to go forth with the rest of your lives with that knowledge in your heart that Hilaria Baldwin's birthday is January sixth. <laughs> Deal with it. We, uh, I just, I didn't realize this was something that was shaking you so much to your core. I don't even remember. I think it was Who Weekly is where I heard it. I want to shout out the source of this information. And it, it just takes a very special kind of brain to know something like that. And that's why I really trust the pop culture experts at Who Weekly. Uh, that they would know Hilaria Baldwin's birthday is January 6th. I had to sit down. I heard the news and I immediately sat down because I was like, I have to process this information because it might be the funniest thing I've ever heard. And it was so funny. My brain short circuited a little bit and I wrote it down in my (laughs) notes for today because I'm like, I do want to bring it up. I don't know what I'm going to say about it, but it might just be like passing along the information. So now you also know this. It's sort of like it follows in that way. Now you have to tell someone else, you know? Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, maybe let's like make that the goal of this episode after you're listening to this episode. Tell one person in your life that Hilaria Baldwin's birthday is January 6th. Yeah, we've got a, we have to, all right, now I understand. I I can see. Do you get the mission? You get the vision? Okay, yeah. I do. This applies to you as well, Meredith. You have to tell someone today. Oh, I will uh, I will make sure to tell my sister. I'm sure Great. this is information she can use. Great. I love it. So I obviously have a bunch of stuff I want to get to. Some like pop culture news stuff, but then recommendations as well. Um, but to pivot a little bit outside of what we usually talk about, I just very quickly wanted to touch on this. Have you seen or are you familiar with the Netflix show Snack versus Chef? No. Okay. That's fine. I'll tell you about it very quickly. So basically, it's 12 chefs who are going head to head in a snack showdown. So basically, they're just recreating iconic snacks. So like stuff you would get in a vending machine, you know? Mm -hmm. And then like 
putting their own twist on it and then trying to come up with their own snack that they would like sell in stores and they do like cute little packaging for it and shit like that. That is not what I want to talk about. I don't want to talk about the show at all. The show is whatever. It's your basic reality cooking show, you know, very standard. Netflix has this whole thing down to a science. I want to talk about the format of the show and the hosts of this show because it is one of the strangest decisions I've ever seen a show make. And I just basically want to give a general note to cooking shows and say, don't feel like you have to hire a comedian for your cooking show. And this is like a decision a lot of networks make, I think, because they're very afraid that like cooking experts and food critics will be boring, which is almost never the case because these people have to like communicate for a living. (laughs) So like are very charismatic in their own right. But they're like, fuck it. We got to get a comedian. Comedians don't know anything about food. So when they're eating the food, they're like, it's good. And like, they're not describing it in any kind of way that's compelling. So, but what's specifically weird about this show is there are four hosts of this show, four, which is excessive, right? You know, that's too many. That's too many hosts. Yes. That's like a full panel. That's what you bring exactly. in. Exactly. Your- that, yeah. I perfectly put that's the panel who comes in after the host to talk in depth. No, this whole show is helmed by four hosts, basically. And they're also the judges. Two are food experts. So these are like food critics who can speak very thoughtfully, compellingly about food. This whole show could have been hosted by them. I think they're great. I don't have their names in front of me. I apologize. When you Google Snack versus Chef, they don't come up as the cast, which is telling. The two comedians, both of who I like a lot, I just want to say, Megan Salter and Hari uh, Kondabalu. I'm sure mm-hmm. I mispronounced his last name. Sorry, Hari. Um, they're both great comedians. And in their element, wonderful. It seems like they have a gun on them every episode. I don't know if it's just the editing that they've like edited out their jokes. They're, they don't make many jokes, which is very weird because Megan and Hari are very funny. Um, yeah. It's, it seems like maybe originally it was supposed to be Megan and Hari and the network panicked a little bit because they weren't very insightful about the food and they brought on the two food eggs. I Basically, I want an oral history of this show because I don't understand how this got to production in the way it got to production. Like, if you don't want to watch the whole show, I totally get it. I would really, really recommend watching at least one episode to see what I'm talking about. And actually... It is an entertaining show. Like once you get used to the sheer awkwardness of the hosts and you just like Mm -hmm. sort of see past it. But I was like, what the fuck happened here? By the way, if anybody worked on the show who's listening, who has any insight, my DMs are always open for hot goss. So let me know. But I'm like, how did you turn two very funny people into like these cardboard cutouts who are adding nothing, nothing? And I was just like, what is the point of this? How did this happen? What's going on? It's so strange. That is fascinating because I feel like I have watched a lot of Netflix shows that have uh, where they let the comedians do basically anything they want. All I can think is Hari is like more of like a standard stand-up, but he's very intellectual. And then Meg is like so alt and strange in her comedy in the best way. Like if you've seen any of her videos on Instagram, she's so fucking funny, but she's not like mainstream funny. And all Mm -hmm. I can think is they were like, these are two hot comics right now. And they put them together. Maybe they didn't have chemistry. I don't know. But like, or maybe they were just too fucking weird. And Netflix got nervous and they were like, fuck it let's like get some actual foodies on here to save this I don't know but like when you see how much they edit down Hari and Meg I'm like what happened on this set I'm just fascinated I'm fascinated well I have two thoughts here like one when has not knowing anything about the topic at hand stopped a comedian from frantically trying to do a bit Like, that's literally what you guys are always doing. And it's one of the reasons why I hate your people. I know. Like, the bits never stop. But I think the obstacle there is 
ultimately when you're on a food show, you have to be able to talk about the food and like, it's just a skill and like a a vocabulary that comics don't have. Like literally Meg and Hari would just be like, that's good. Cause that's like how a comedian would talk about food, you know, like, yeah, it's, I like, what else do I say about this? And then the people who actually know about food have a million things to say about it. But like, I don't think they were given the opportunity to riff because it's like, limited in how much you can riff about something where ultimately you're just supposed to say this is good or not good, (laughs) you know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the other thing I want to say is, do you think that's that the Netflix people, like given how they're clearly flailing, um, they just took the wrong lessons from, is it cake? Oh yeah. They thought, all right, yeah. So we need, we need someone deranged to do this, but they forgot that the point of, is it cake? Wasn't, making cake it was to make cake that looked like not cake well and also (laughs) mikey's a great example because like he's a really good improviser and i don't know if megan hart i don't think they're improvisers like from what i understand if they're coming up harry's always been stand up and meg was an instagram girly like a video girly you know so it, it just it always does really illustrate how valuable improv skills are in a host, <laughs> you know, cause like <laughs> Mikey's great. Mikey's great on that show and he's a fucking maniac and he just like, but he's so funny the whole time, you know? And that's yeah. a very specific improv thing. So yeah, maybe, maybe that's the solution. It's like, you can have funny people, but they have to have good improv skills and like, but I don't know. I've seen Meg be funny and improvise. I think maybe she was too weird. And nobody really knew what to do with her. <laughs> that, I mean, that would track. I yeah. feel like that's very, that's very common. Ugh, I'm um, fascinated though. So if anybody has any insight, please let me know. Um, while you are watching much more substantive stuff on Netflix uh, than I am. You think that's substantive? <laughs> substantive? Yeah. Well, I watched a, I turned on a TV show on my sister's recommendation called Physical 100. Ooh. And it's just a Korean reality show where hot, super fit people compete with each other. Okay, no lie. So that obviously was recommended to me by the algorithm because they're like, you're a piece of garbage. And I'm like, yes, I am. I have every intention in my heart to watch it. Oh, my! Uh, it, it is it is astounding. Mm-hmm. Like if you, you will enjoy it. Amazing. Uh, Great. So there's, there's just no question there. It is glorious. Um, but yeah, it is like, if you like seeing incredibly hot people mm-hmm. compete, like in challenges of strength and physical prowess, mm-hmm. you will enjoy it. Cause they're not hot, like American built. They're just, they're like, yeah, American men are going to suffer if they have to start compete, like truly competing with hot people <laughs> from around the globe. Um, it's, that's just all there is to it. Well, we were a fan of American Ninja Warriors, so this sounds right up my lane. So that, oh yeah, you are going to dig it. Um, so, oh, and by the way, if I was ambiguous in any way, I do recommend Snack versus Chef. Uh, all the awkwardness aside, I thought it was like a really interesting show. Like, you know, Netflix is so good at casting reality television shows. So like interesting people doing interesting things. I'm just fascinated by how awkward the hosts were. So like, that's my only note, but I do recommend it. It is a, it's a good watch. Um, We have to talk about this next thing, Meredith. I feel like by default, because we've been covering it so long and like covering the gossip and like, we were talking about this story before it was a story basically. So now I feel like we have to just see it out to the bitter end. Let's talk about the army hammer piece, I guess. Oh, I mean, we have to because yikes. Yeah. Just, uh, and yeah, it is pretty significant. Um, I think, as you said to me last night, we all knew the redemption arc was going to happen because it was clear people were really like had decided he was going to survive this. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it is shocking how quick and seamless the process is moving. It is. But then when I thought about it for a second, he 
has so much privilege and so much money behind him, despite everything he claims. He claims like he got cut out of his dad's will and he has no money and he's destitute. He's lying. <laughs> he's absolutely lying. He still has money. He still has enormous privilege. He has wildly powerful friends who are helping him right now, including the guy mm-hmm. who wrote this article for him, um, <laughs> this puff piece for him. Uh so I I was shocked. That's why I said that. I'm like, it's happening really fast. But then when I thought about it, I was like, but is it? I mean, considering who we're dealing with right now, he's yeah, he's been yeah. out of commission, what, like three years now? Four years? About three years, I think. What was, uh, I, things really broke. Was it 2021? That's what I, I was trying to remember. Like yeah. End of 2020, beginning of 2021 when things all happened. Cause I've, I have the distinct feeling that it was, yeah, there was a big article that was published in May of 2021 in Vanity Fair okay. about all of the things that was the one that got into like all of the craziness and says that his aunt works for like a home Depot or something. And then there had been like rumblings, like, years before that like where people were like talking and like we were hearing rumors and stuff about he's a bad dude (laughs) and like very violent and scary um so his his buddy James uh Kerchick wrote this hagiography for him in airmail which I have never heard of (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's a a, a newsletter okay of course I, yeah. I was not familiar with the newsletter or this guy. And then I heard that he was Army's friend. And I was like, of course he is. Um, and basically, it is Army Hammer, quote unquote, breaking his silence, which we need to retire as a phrase in journalism. Um, and it's about the allegations against him, which he denies. Um, and him offering kind of an apology, but also bitching about cancel culture. and. To me, the most evil part of it, using the um, fact that he claims he was sexually abused as a child, I believe him, um, using that as an excuse for why he went on to hurt people, which I find profoundly fucked up because, I mean, we know so many people who have been sexually abused who don't go on to become predators, and it's fucking insulting to apply that like imply he had no choice in the matter because he was sexually abused well and, and furthermore it's insulting because it perpetuates the notion that the only people into bdsm are people who are damaged in some way right. and that this is a sign of an underlying trauma and while that might be true and sex like experimenting sexually and like finding a way to have healthy sexuality after being assaulted is an incredibly important part of healing. There is a lot of work that you need to like, that needs to go in before you can say, well, I was sexually abused. Like the, the sentence doesn't end at, and that's why I decided I needed to become like an incredibly violent dom. Right. Right. Yeah. You go like that process continues so you can say, yes, this is a way that I use this to like create a sense of control, but in create like creating a healthy sexuality for myself meant that I needed to disentangle these things and figure out what really worked for me. And he clearly just stopped at, I like this. Right. And is now like, maybe some of his therapy has led him to do the work that required the sort of getting him there, but it's so disingenuous to be doing it in an interview that also is like with an extremely friendly reporter who is definitely on the cancel culture is real. Me too is all a scam to ruin men kind of person. So, you know, these are in, in, in ways that say, Oh, well, here's all of the evidence that these women were lying. Right. Right. Yeah. The, the takedown of, uh, Effie. Yeah. Um, and by the way, she was not the only one making these allegations. She's just the one who's held her ground the longest because I'm sure he sent the full force of God after these women, you know? Um, and she's been stubborn and he's pissed, you know? Um, but 
Yeah, it, it's exactly what you would expect of a man who, you know, white, cis, straight, privileged man. Um, how much? And like, also, really, we're that invested in getting his career back. Like, he has been He's in so good things. He mid. has been He's good in some things. But ultimately, so mid. You know how I feel about this. The things he's most praised for are because he happened to have the dumb luck of being cast opposite, I don't know, Timothy Chalamet. <laughs> and it's yeah. like he would or make he's anyone look really good. Stupid. <laughs> well, and also, or he's in something where he doesn't actually have to do much except look pretty, like the man from Uncle. Right. And again, a movie with a lot of problematic people in it. But that's for another time. And again, I would make the argument there. He's surrounded by an incredibly charismatic cast. Like, I don't know if you put Army Hammer with a bunch of other mids, if he's going to carry anything, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think that because he has a small part in Small Sorry to Bother You that is absolutely not a stretch. He, Yeah, he's kind of <laughs> like, playing himself. And he, I will say he eats that scene because he's playing himself. Right. But again, it is this setup of, you know, he is set up for success and doesn't seem to have to stretch himself. And uh, there just is such a long line of stuff that is just blank. There's like a lot of his career is just beige. And they tried, you know, they were trying to sell him to everybody for so long because, again, privilege, privilege, privilege. He's had a million chances. Finally, 2018, things pop off for him because of Call Me By Your Name. And yeah, this is what he fucking does with it. And it's like, yeah, dude, like, you know, you needed to go away. And I guess he's trying to stage this comeback. Now, I feel the way about him that I feel about when I like search Johnny Depp's name on Twitter and I'm like, surely he can't have that many supporters. Army Hammer has like a hardcore fan base who are aggressive, and it's a lot of women who are like aggressively lobbying for him to come back. And they're the first people commenting on anti-army tweets. They'll jump in and they'll be like, you know, they'll drag Evie's name through the mud where they're like, nothing's been proven. Like that shit. Yeah. And I, I mean, I don't get that because like, obviously there's, you know, the element, like these people are not going to see it and they're not going to fuck you. Um, and as we've just, you know, determined chances are a lot of them are not going to be into the kind of sex that he would want to have. Yeah. Yeah. They don't know Uh, this is like a scary individual. Well, there's also like conspiracy theorists who do you know about the charmies? Uh, no, they're the people who genuinely think Timothy Chalamet and Army Hammer are in a relationship and have been in a secret relationship for years. Okay, I'm just going to say it. The fan fiction internet I know. Is, was a mistake. It really... And I'm, like, I'm sorry because I imagine that we have a lot of readers who have experience in those communities and I recognize that I'm, you know, please, I'm being facetious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But Jesus Christ, so many people have gotten so many brain worms. It's like, okay, it's one thing. It was funny when it was two members of One Direction. <laughs> But you shouldn't still be thinking about that. I know. It, like, it gets creepy. a decade ago. <laughs> it's always creepy when it's about real people because that's when it gets into like, it feels like QAnon fan fiction where it's like, oh, you think this is like real? Like I support people yeah. who write like Lord of the Rings fan fiction, you know, shit like that. It's like, yeah, you're just being like creative and horny. I support that. But when it's about real people and they like, they'll message like, army hammers ex-wife about it and shit i'm like y'all are crazy sorry to use that word but like you're but you're I, off I the rails think, yeah but it is and it's fascinating that it happens so often around the worst people and i mean i think that there's you know because you, you mentioned johnny depp you get army hammer you know the support that bubbles up for these people who are just determined to not reckon with the consequences of their actions um, right. And it's not a coincidence that they're straight white men. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and I, I feel kind of old and out of touch in a way that I guess is healthy, but also is kind of frightening. I just don't know what's driving people to take such a personal investment into these rehabilitation narratives to people who are in the public eye. Yeah, I like I think part of it is these are like intensely 
isolated, lonely people who are projecting their happiness on a celebrity, which is always a fucking mistake because, listen, and I don't want to be unkind, but you could be dying in the middle of the street and Army Hammer would drive around you, you know, like, or maybe drive over you. I don't know. Depends on his mood. Um, But he doesn't care about you. He'll never care about you. You're wasting your energy defending this man who does not deserve (laughs) your energy or your defense, you know. But I think I I think it is a lot of lonely people who are just creating fantasies because they're unhappy, yeah. you know. It makes me long for the relatively healthy drama of that woman in the romance self-publishing community oh my who fakes her own. God. Death. Y'all, this is a wild story that I am not qualified to talk about. <laughs> But basically, that's the gist of it. There was a woman who was, she's a self-published romance novelist and was not selling her work. So she faked her own suicide and then was like, was it a suicide or did she just die? It was, it was her own suicide. But I guess it was her family was so concerned by the fact that she was spending all of her time online that they did have to hospitalize her or they had to do have some sort of intervention. And then they said she took her own life, but she decided that she missed the online so much after two years that she decided to come back. Oh my God. But during this period, she had created fake accounts. One of which became the administrator of her Facebook page. (laughs) So it's the it, it, deeply unhealthy. And I, I feel for her. I read an interview with her and she sounds like she's really struggling. Yes, yeah. Um, but it's, I just keep getting, I get so sad when I think about all of the different avenues people have to engage extremely unhealthily with uh, the world like this. God, that's an incredibly overbroad statement. But I... Yeah, I just, there's nothing more than, God, please touch grass, hug someone. I know. And like, like I, I brought this up to you when we were talking about George Santos, but as a person with intense anxiety, I'm fascinated by pathological liars because um, it's like a nightmare scenario for me. Like the idea that you would have so many lies up in the air that you have to juggle. Well, you get anxious when you have to come up with an excuse to not go to an event <laughs> that you feel. Op- yeah, I. Oh, are you there? Oh, OK. You went out for a second. Um, yeah, I I, <laughs> I do have anxiety when I have to come up with like bullshit excuses for why I can't go places. But yeah, so I'm fascinated by people like this, this author and George Santos, because I'm like, I I think I would literally die if I had to keep a secret the magnitude of I faked my own death, yeah. you know? Uh, or like, I was wild. a producer on Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark. My God. Like, I listen, at this point, I know that it, this is like a mental illness because anybody who lies this much, like, he can't control it. It's a reflex, yada, yada, yada. But again, I'm fascinated by it because it's like, Dude already knows that everybody knows him as the liar, right? Mm -hmm. And he still can't stop. I'm like, in the worst kind of rubbernecking way, I'm fascinated by that. Well, the thing that I think ties it back to what we're, you know, where we started with ARMY and, and these terrible people is I just can't imagine living in the world and having so much disregard for other people that yeah. I think the correct course of action is to attack and impugn people who I harmed. Right. Yeah. And I know it's from a place of like fear, but also arrogance and narcissism because maybe he really doesn't think he did anything wrong, which would undercut his whole, I've gone to therapy and I'm doing the work, you know, like any bit of sympathy you might've had for him in this article to me, in my opinion is undercut the moment he starts going in on cancel culture. Yeah. Cause it's like, well then this is all from a place of anger and you think you've been wrong. Yeah. Right. It's not really from you taking accountability and reflecting and realizing you were in the wrong. Like you're still pissed off because you don't think you did anything wrong. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, 
Let's just yeah, stop so talking feel, about him because I don't want to give him any more brain space. <laughs> yeah. And I was going to say, don't feel like you have to read the article or anything. I probably won't link to it because why give them the traffic? But um, yeah, I felt like we needed to talk about it just because like, I do feel like weirdly connected to the story now. <laughs> oh, absolutely. And I think, you know, the it's just not nothing good about it. Can There just can't be anything good from it. And I say that as someone who knows a lot of people who like weird sex and or like non-vanilla sex. So I recognize like kink shaming is really dangerous and this is not actually going to help people. And him complaining about cancel culture and it somehow being related to the fact that he's into BDSM. No, that's not going to help anyone else who's into BDSM. You are not doing a favor. We don't need you to be the poster boy. No, God forbid. Stay away. Um, So my first recommendation, I won't harp on too long because I know you don't watch the show, Meredith, but I just wanted to shout out episode three of The Last of Us, which was hyped so far in advance by critics who got screeners. Like I had heard so much about episode three that I'm like, there's no way it's going to live up to the hype. And then guess what? It fucking did. And then like, so obviously I wanted to shout out Nick Offerman and uh, Murray Bartlett are wonderful in this episode. But the thing we've been like bitching about the internet, the thing that always happens happens and it drove me nuts to see it happen in real time, which is a very good thing that a lot of people like becomes very popular. And then there's this immediate backlash of people just being like, it's not that good. Here's why it's actually super offensive. And it's like the offensive thing was just like, come on guys. Like basically people were like, they just made these characters gay for clout. And it's like, Oh God. Like, I mean, I, I have, I just haven't gotten to it. I did watch the first episode. Okay. I'll get there. But knowing that I'm going to be completely destroyed, uh, is, you know, I got to find the right moment for it. Cause I, I, think I just don't need to be super depressed before I have say like a big meeting tomorrow. Um, well, I will say this. They, they do something in the episode that I actually really love that I wish other apocalyptic or post-apocalyptic shows would do like say the walking dead, which is in all of these post-apocalyptic shows, movies, we see people fighting for survival and you're kind of like, why? Because everything sucks. <laughs> like everybody's miserable they're eating terrible food. They're like fighting each other. It's just like, why would you fight so hard to stay alive in this world? And what I love about episode three is there's this beautiful love story where they show you like why you would keep fighting. And it lasts over a decade. And we see these two men, their entire relationship. And it's so well done and it's gutting. I mean, like I had to watch it in chunks like I had to keep pausing because I was crying (laughs) so hard and like I feel like if you say that now people roll their eyes because they're like well that's too earnest or like you bought into HBO's gay propaganda I guess I don't know I don't know you saying that people are mad because it's all about clout I'm like I think there are probably gay people on the writing staff like (laughs) actually isn't the the characters The characters in the video game are gay, but it's like in a very um like early 2000s gay where like they don't really talk about it. Well, is one do- of them already dead? Yeah, he killed himself, which is why the- Bill is mad at him. Okay. Because he's left him, but he's his emotions are manifesting in extreme anger and you don't see like the nice side of their relationship at all. And this is all the nice side of their relationship. Yeah. So you see why they fell in love. I really, really, really bought them as a couple. I thought it was lovely the way they developed the relationship. And yeah, I know like there's complicated feelings about straight actors playing gay characters, but if you're going to do it, Nick Offerman is a good one to do, (laughs) you know? And as somebody pointed out, like being married to Megan Mullally is kind of like queer culture. So (laughs) (laughs) yes. Well, and it's not like they had two straight people playing the couple. Exactly. Murray Bartlett. Man, that guy is a gem. I, you know, did he sign an exclusive HBO contract? Is he just going to be in everything now? You know, that's a great question because I forgot he was in Looking, Mm -hmm. too. 
And so he's gone from Lord, was he White Lotus. <laughs> oh my God. He is a beautiful, I saw, or I heard guys, I don't remember where I consume media, but somebody was like, it was just so nice to see, um, two like unattractive gay men as like, <laughs> As like uh, deviating from the norm of what you see on TV, and, I'm, and I was like, not only is Murray Bartlett beautiful, Nick Offerman's hot. Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> People's brains are like, okay, if they don't look like they've been uh, working on a new concept for like the Twink Diet, that they can't yeah, be like the bears can't, can't have- be hot. I'm like, they're both so hot. Are you crazy? And like together, I was like, come on. Also, but yeah, it's still always supposed to. It has to be about chemistry. And the number of people that were completely devastated make me think, okay, it seems like they had a believable romance. So they do. Yeah. I just yeah, it, it seems very silly to to get down on that. I mean, and I. As long as it, if I, I will keep watching the show, I think. I remember being impressed by the little bit of the video game somebody showed me. I think they played me the opening scene and I was like, okay. But then I was informed that I had to like keep playing to hear more of the story. And I was like, I'm yeah. sorry guys. You know, <laughs> there are actually, there are super cuts. I have not watched them, but there are super cuts on YouTube of just the story in the video game that are apparently are beautiful and very like cinematic and well edited. And if you're not into the the video game play of it, at all and you just want to know the story you can watch those online yeah i'm still not gonna do that <laughs> i'm not gonna do it either especially because i'm like i'm really enjoying the the television show you know um so yeah i if you i don't know anybody who dipped out of the last of us but if you did and you're like should i watch episode three episode three is one of the best episodes of television ever in my opinion it's certainly in my top five so highly recommended let's get to infinity pool motherfucker oh my god okay so i'm curious if anyone has also encountered the situation where you've said something about infinity pool or you've been thinking you know you saw an ad for it and you thought that looks way too scary way too gory way too dark because i've had a number of people say oh i don't know I, i don't know if i can see that it looks like it'll upset me too much and i was like i don't know it wasn't that bad it, no. it was kind of, I don't know that I liked it that much. It definitely didn't succeed like fully, you know, on its, on its own merits, but uh, people seem to think that it's like they're killing animals and like Alexander Skarsgård is like coming all over like dead bodies and stuff instead of it being just sort of weird. <laughs> He does come, but it's from a single hand job at the very beginning yeah. of the film. And yeah. I recognize that what they showed at the festivals was the NC-17 version, and we all saw the R version. But I was like, did they see his dick in the NC-17 version? Because the way critics freaked out about that cum shot, I'm like, if it was what we saw in the R version, I'm like, what the fuck? That was nothing. I know. And like the weird psychedelic orgy also kind of tame. Very tame. And like the editing, like they, did you have warnings at your theater yes, about the flashing, lights? the flashing lights? So yeah. to me, that just took me out of it so much because the editing is kind of insane. And then the lights are a lot that I was like, I don't even know what I'm looking at right now. <laughs> like, are those naked bodies? I can't tell. So yeah, I didn't, there was no shock value for me. Yeah. Um, it felt very like, it felt very like Brendan Cronenberg uh, looking at us and being like, have I shocked you yet? And I was always like, no. Yeah. I would, I, so it's such a good concept for a movie and very much in keeping with a Cronenberg, you know, there's a, a, the straight character, Alexander Skarsgård plays an author. He's on vacation with his wife in a, in a resort that's in some made up country that is clearly, uh, very violent and dangerous or. We're going to circle back to that in a second. (laughs) But I, uh. And so they're in this gated compound resort, um, something that had definitely existed for many years and I think still exists in, in lots of parts of the globe. Uh, yeah, they sure. meet another couple, Mia Goth and an older man. Um, there's a crime, you know, they accidentally hit someone with a car. It turns out the justice system means that if you're responsible for anyone's death, you have to be killed, but you can buy a clone who will die in your stead. 
surprise, that's a twist, everybody. You learn it almost immediately, and then there's still so much film. Uh, and, of course, the fact that you can just commit crimes and then pay for a double to die for you would create some pretty nihilistic people, which is, of yeah, course, probably they like, turn out to be. You're probably like, that's that's a really interesting premise. And it's like, it is. We don't really explore it. Yeah, and that was my biggest problem with the film. I think it's worth watching. It makes me continue to be interested in Brandon Cronenberg's work because it's not like David's, uh, his father's uh, filmography were all winners. But it was disappointing to me because I felt like there was a, there just was a lot of potential and power in having Mia Goth obviously set up as this insane femme fatale who's here to do the most. I will say it is worth it for me just for the scene of her on the hood of the car, car. almost spilling her wine and also like a lunatic pointing the gun going, James, I was like, she is fucking insane. And I love it. I wanted more of it, but then I don't know. I go back and forth with Mia where I'm like, is her power in the fact that she's not a lead and she's just like the little weirdo? I don't know because she's so good in Pearl. I think the larger problem is she didn't have anyone, like she didn't have a character to be playing off of. And there, this was not supposed, it became her show because there wasn't enough thought out about why she was luring him into this, you know? Yeah. And how do you feel about this? I think Alexander Skarsgård was really miscast. I agree. I do. I think he's it's- too big. Anytime he's threatened in a physical situation, I'm like, just kill everybody. You're the <laughs> biggest person I've ever seen in my life. And I think that it's not a problem to have someone who's impossibly beautiful playing the role of someone unsuccessful. Like that can be kind of fun, but he is incredibly imposing. And the visual joke of having him on a dog leash, like, yes, please. Was that a joke? Was that a joke? I don't think so, but I think it's funny. Like, <laughs> okay, I I was like, I don't know what I'm supposed to be feeling right now, but think of this. What if Maz Mickelson instead of Alexander Skarsgård? Yeah, see, but are you just doing your own fan fiction right now? Well, yeah, that's what casting is. <laughs> <laughs> casting is fan fiction, yeah. You're like, who would I want to see in this role? I think he would be more believable as like, he's still beautiful, but like, you know, kind of a washed up author. Well, and I, I think that it was this, I didn't feel enough that the main character was losing himself in a way that felt like he was excited about it. Like there wasn't, I didn't feel tension except for maybe one scene. Um, And it's unfortunate because I do want to watch a movie that has cum shots and psychedelic orgies and Mia Goth. But this just didn't work. You know, it fell apart. And I, yeah, I was, I left feeling kind of empty. Like, okay, this does feel like it was just made to shock and didn't actually make me think about something. And maybe it's because the premise, you know, before the you can hire a clone to die for you thing um, was so felt like so well worn you know Mm -hmm. like foreigner fucks up in strange land what do you do like i mean midnight express came out in like 1980 (laughs) you know we've had like we've been doing the turkish prison thing for like 40 years um but had you ever seen or were you familiar with um so alexander skarsgård in the film he's married to a woman m uh, Cleopatra Coleman. I was not familiar. I was with not her. either, and I but I felt like she had so little to do that it was kind of hard yes. for me to even want to go look up what she had been in. So I don't know if this is like a superficial thing to mention, but I was like, oh well, there's the most beautiful woman I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> and then like, and then she was like not in the film that much, or she didn't have that much to do. But I don't know. I just saw her and I was like, oh damn. So like, no idea if she can act. Don't know anything about this woman. I think she was like an online girly, maybe. Uh, um, well, I mean, I what I find to be so frustrating is that if I'm going to go see a movie by someone who made something as good as Possessor, which remains one of the best films I've seen in recent years, I just still love it so much. Mm-hmm. Um, 
why there was absolutely no exploration of the consciousness of the clones. Like, why give us so much detail? Why do you have a process and show us going through the process? Because they have to be absolutely you and feel the fear without actually... It just seems like, yes, it's obvious, but it's always a missed opportunity when you're dealing with clones that are supposed to be exact replicas, where you don't have the original person grappling with the sameness, you know? Like, I, kept I shouldn't be like, turn. okay, give me the prestige, because at least I had to think about the ethics of killing your clone. You know what I mean? <laughs> Right. I kept waiting for the turn where we were going to have the perspective switch where he is a clone, but he thinks he's the original. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted, I was, I kind of, and that that never happened. I was like, okay. Um, so one of the aspects of this I wanted to talk about is I'm so over and I would like us to all pause our screenplays. If we're in the middle of writing anything like this, the person goes on an expensive dinner or resort trip or vacation. And then like, briefly thinks about class and writes a screenplay about it. And then I have to watch it because like <laughs> I was listening to an interview with Cronenberg uh, and, you know, the interviewer was like, why did you write this? Which is like a very basic question. And first of all, this was inspired by a trip he took to the Dominican Republic and which he changed for the screenplay to a, a white country because obviously didn't want to grapple with the race aspect of all of this, which would have been interesting. Yeah. But let's just set that aside because I don't want to think about it because I'm a privileged white guy. So he basically um, was like, okay, so we'll make it Croatia. Exactly. Which felt very weird to me. It felt like a weird move. Cause I'm like, if these people are going to go like on an exotic vacation, they would go to like a tropical beach. Right. Yeah. Um, But anyway, so he changes it to a white country so he doesn't have to think about race. And then he was like, yeah, we were staying in this gated resort. And I like we would go out and there was a lot of poverty. And I was like, wow, (laughs) that was like it. That was like his or that's all he wanted to express. And I was like, "Okay, dude. But like, you know, we have so much of this right now. We've got like the menu and Triangle of Sadness and like, you know, I'm sure I'm forgetting another one. But like so many of these. I took a fancy trip. I went to a fancy restaurant. Gee, class is weird. And I'm like, yeah, I guess. And I guess it would be kind of tone deaf to not be talking about class right now. But it's always from the perspective, by default, of privileged people. And it's a little like, at this point, I'm like, all right, Parasite was the classic, right? That everybody's trying to achieve. Nobody's going to reach that. Can we do something else or no? Yeah, I mean, I think that we're in for some pretty mid-class critiques for the foreseeable future. Um, I don't think there's any way around it, which is unfortunate. You know who did but- it right, though? Barbarian does address gentrification and stuff like that, but I think Barbarian does it successfully. Uh, yeah, but also, um, and I, you know, this could be a nice lead into me just finally getting with the program and seeing Megan. Uh, there's something having people who actually are like funny <laughs> and capable of thinking about yeah. jokes and how like you can make this stuff interesting without it, you know, and without jamming it down people's throats with its obviousness, like that helps. Cause what was the funniest part of barbarian when Justin Long tries to figure out if the murder basement oh my will God. get him more money. I, when that was happening and I realized what he was doing, I was like, this is the funniest move I've ever seen in a movie. <laughs> I think I it's so good. Um, but you know, like there were funny people who wrote for the menu too. I just like, I don't know, man. Like whenever it gets to class analysis, I'm a little like, Oh God, like again, nothing's going to be parasite, but I know, I don't know. Um, but yes, I do want to talk about the fact that I saw Megan yesterday. I was waiting to see it with my sister because she had some stuff coming up and was going to be at home for a while. And so I decided I can't see this movie without her. I have to wait until she's, we have to rent it. Uh, I'm going to go out on a limb and predict that you liked it. We absolutely adored it. I (laughs) was delighted by every last choice I'm also still laughing at uh, one particular bit from the movie. Um, they do a lot of fake commercials 
which yes. I really enjoyed. But uh, there's a moment towards the end that this doesn't give anything away if you haven't seen it, where where Gemma, the main character's boss, is doing a promotional video for Megan. And it's playing in the atrium of the headquarter, like toy headquarters. And he's talking about all of this and he says, all the kids, like the kids will love it. Even the ones who don't have dead parents. <laughs> <laughs> and the way that Ronnie Chang delivers that line God. made us scream so loud that we had to rewind it and watch the whole thing again just so that we could get that. And I'm so glad oh. that America is finally getting to know Ronnie and that he is the funniest human being alive because like I I can't even remember the first time I heard him he must have been on a podcast or something and like it's so rare that I go and I google a guest on a podcast and I was just like this dude's so fucking smart and so funny who the hell is he that was immediately before Megan came out. I had no idea he was in it. I get to the theater and I'm like, holy shit. Like, I guess this guy's about to blow the fuck up. But yeah, he's so talented. Absolutely. Like stealth MVP of the movie of a movie that has a lot of very, very notable performances that work extremely well. And there was just so much silliness. I have, I I'm so ready for the dominance of Akilah Cooper over the world of horror. Like, if, yeah. if big budget horror is uh, people like her, uh, you know, smart people who understand how to write scripts for big budget movies that are the, you know, fun kind of crazy. Uh, and, you know, other people, people like Zach Krieger uh, coming in and making movies and then bringing in funny, like actual comedians to play Magic. these roles. like. Yeah. It it sparkles. It's so much more enjoyable than 90% of what's out there. Like I felt yeah. like I was being served directly. Mm-hmm. But yeah. not that I was getting fan service. No, the tone the tone was really spot on. I that's what I was nervous about when we recorded an episode before Megan even came out where I was like Ah, it just feels like, you know, designed to go viral. Is it going to be a compelling story? Are we going to be able to believe in the emotional stakes? And it's like, yeah, it's just really well written. The Mm -hmm. characters are good. I believed in the emotional stakes and like, it's a good fucking movie. Also, whoever did the music supervision crushed it (laughs) because there's a very specific moment that we won't spoil that it was just an absolute banger. And they, but they picked so many songs that are also specifically catnip to me. I was like, oh, a Soul Wax remix of a Charlotte Gainsbourg song? (laughs) Did someone dig into my dreams? The people have been (laughs) demanding it for so long, and we finally got it. Uh, Yeah, I just, um, I really needed that. Great. So we have another recommendation for Megan. Before we run out of time, I did want to get to Knock at the Cabin, which I saw recently. Um, Oh, uh, sorry. To circle back briefly. So would we lukewarm wreck Infinity Pool? I think we lukewarm wreck it. Um, It's fine to wait to see it on streaming. I do think it's worth it for Mia. Yeah. But it's it's not like a must-see. You don't have to run out to. No, no, no. No, definitely watch it at home. But yeah, do watch it for Mia. Um, so knock at the cabin, however, I, I feel very conflicted about because I was very down on it immediately after seeing it because, um, and I guess I'll just say spoilers for the movie and the book. So if you are not interested in hearing either of those, we bid you adieu and, uh, go see knock at the cabin. Maybe if, if, if the spirit moves you. And then listen to this because I, my very specific beef, I think I have to talk about spoilers. So, and Meredith hasn't seen it, but doesn't not care, correct? I do not care. And also I've read the book. So, you know, the the things that you have problems with are things that I can understand. Yeah. Right. And we talked about it ahead of time. So (laughs) I'm saying all this for your benefit, listener. Um, We both know what's up. You have no fucking idea what we text each other. So my main thing was Paul Tremblay uh, wrote uh, the book and 
you know, the book, the book's good. I'll say it in that sort of like way where my voice goes up at the end where I'm like, it's good, you know, which means like not tremendous, but like a fine book, a quick read, you know, mm-hmm. it um, does have, but- so, it does have some really excellent elements that are extremely engaging. Yes. And I will say to M. Night Shyamalan's credit, he keeps my favorite scene verbatim in the film, which is the opening um, when Dave Bautista's character meets the little girl and uh, line by line, the same beautiful performances, a deeply, deeply disturbing scene. And it's like very effectively shot, very effectively done. No notes. Good job, everybody. And then gradually the film just falls apart because M does what he does, which is take things very literally and remove all nuance and ultimately make like what's kind of a silly ending, you know? Um, And to me, that was sort of like, uh, it just like, it really stabbed me in the heart because I, you know, Paul Tremblay made some pretty bold literary decisions, including, and this is a big spoiler. So if you have not heeded my advice yet, please turn off now. Uh, he kills the kid in the book. Yeah. Like she's accidentally shot in a, a tussle that the adults are having and she's shot and she dies, which is like, holy shit. <laughs> Cause part of the book is you, you see what's happening through the different characters point of views. And she, when is one of our point of views and then she's just gone. And it's like, Oh my God. <laughs> you know, like it's so rare to see an author or a director or a writer or anybody make the decision to kill a kid. Because it's it's a big swing that can turn the audience against you really fast. And so I was really impressed that Paul did that. And I was like, I told Meredith before I saw the fucking movie, I'm like, there's no way Knight's going to do this. He's going to take it out. And I, But I still couldn't believe it when it was happening, when I realized they weren't going to kill her. I was like, mother, you fucking cowards. You're cowards. It really bothered me because the he has killed kids you know like true good point done this uh um you know the sixth sense dead kids (laughs) spoiler alert for a movie from the 90s can you imagine Uh, if somebody got mad oh but then he like he said this really obnoxious thing and i'm gonna be paraphrasing oh yes i remember when you sent this to me and uh, yeah i tweeted it too where basically he was like well, I can't do certain things because, like, you know, um, somebody will be like, well, my friend Claire is too sensitive and she doesn't want to see this. So, you know, like, I got to direct for a mainstream audience. So, like, I'm like, are you editing your films based on, like, a fictional Karen who hasn't even, like, criticized you yet? And that's why you took this out? Like, I thought it was so strange to say something like that. Um, and, it, and, like, disheartening where I'm like, are you making creative decisions now based on maybe offending, like, a housewife somewhere? Yeah. Well, I think he also was like, oh, the 14-year-old boys want to see more blood, but, like, Claire is not Mm going to want that. And I thought, right, I think that you have grossly misunderstood who's currently paying to go see horror movies, dude. That's another thing. There's always this assumption that, like, horror is a boys genre, and I'm like, y'all obviously are not going to the theater because it's so many women and girls who like horror um, in the same way that we like true crime, like we like scary things, you know, because mm-hmm. uh, we are constantly hunted and in danger. <laughs> so it's like, I mean, a thrill for us. One thing that has made me uneasy, basically, since I realized they were making when I saw a preview for the movie, I immediately read the book because um, I wanted to know if it was going to be worth right. watching. Uh, same, yeah. But as soon as I saw, read the book, I thought, oh, there's no way that M. Night Shyamalan is going to do this in a way that. I'm going to be interested in. And one of my main concerns was how is like, is he able to make a movie about a gay couple and their daughter that actually makes the relationship feel real and actually gets to the tension. This is a man who in the old, in the old beach movie made the rapper named midsize sedan. He never forget. Not good. Never forget Mid-Size Sedan. He's bad Where's at that guy right now? Period. <laughs> I think about him all the time. Where's Mid-Size Sedan now? What's he doing? Oh. Um, so, yeah, I wanted to shout out 
please know none of my criticism is about the cast because I think the cast does an, uh, a lovely job. I think Dave Bautista is legit brilliant in this film. I'm so excited to see him act more and in like serious roles or like maybe not like comedies too, but just like meteor roles that he can like really get into. Roles that allow him to not only be the largest man you've ever seen. Yeah. Although when they use that effectively in this film, it is like, stunning like because like he is such a large man then but then you put him next to a child and it's like he does look like a god and it is very effective (laughs) it's like oh my god um but also jonathan groff ben aldridge great they do the most they absolutely can they're acting their little butts off i'm not criticizing them but i got out of the theater and i texted meredith and i was like i truly can't even remember if we see them kiss I don't think we do maybe we do in like one scene but other than that they they talk about loving each other and like they keep expressing like you know we're on the same team and like there's some effective like touching but like none of the heat that you would expect from like these guys are still like relatively young and they're both very good looking and I'm like y'all like they would have more chemistry than this. Yeah. But, and, and that's really, that's a frustrating thing to think about because the, the whole premise is that this is supposed to be an impossible choice for this family and they have to fight over it with these terrifying intruders. If it doesn't feel like they actually have a connection, it makes the whole thing feel much sillier. It does. And also when you remove the ambiguousness that's in the book, which is, is this real? I think it is. Oh, maybe it's not. And we never ever, and this is critical, we never learn for sure if the apocalypse is happening or if these people are fucking nuts. We never do. And at the end, they choose to walk away together because they're like, you know what? My love for you overrules the possibility that this might be real. I just like, I can't, I can't sacrifice you for a maybe. This right? is like, we, like, this is real. We are real. We're All real. of this yeah. stuff might not be. So let's hold on to the thing that is real instead of letting ourselves be controlled by something that might yeah. be in And it's super action. powerful. Yeah. Like it's, it's very powerful, but like maybe I could understand the calculation of it's not a great look if we kill a little Chinese American girl and the two privileged white gay guys walk away at the end. Like maybe that would just be like a a bit tone deaf. But what really drove me nuts was that M night as is his style could not leave things ambiguous and decided it's real. The apocalypse is happening. It's real. And that kills the story kills it because once you know, it's real you're kind of mad at Andrew, who's the character. He's the dad who's like, this is ridiculous. We we can't do this. And Eric is more of like the religious believer, you know? Yeah. And you're mad at Andrew because you're like, but we know it's real, dude. And that really kills the story because in the book, you're sort of like, yeah, my God, who would believe this? Yeah. Um, I'm still curious. I've recently discovered that there are movie theater chain here that does $5 Tuesdays. So I'll probably see it during one of those opportunities, but I just haven't gotten around to it. Um, can I make a wreck before we go? Since I feel like, yes, uh, let me just yeah. clarify. I would lukewarm wreck. Okay. Not knock at the cabin. I am going to do, I have a full throated recommendation, which is keeping with my recent tradition of recommending old things that are awesome. Yeah. Uh, Thanks to the third installment of In Search of Darkness on Shudder, I decided to watch the movie Fear No Evil from 1981. Yeah, baby, I watched it too. Uh, It is totally nonsensical. It is not, it's clearly been edited poorly by a studio that was concerned about something. Uh, All the gayness? Was it all the gayness? Yeah. But what did they take out since it's, I mean, okay, so the basic so premise the gay scenes are still in there. Do you a, think they were like, this feels too straight. Can we take out yeah. some of the straight scenes? Yeah. Long story short, on the premise, gay teen antichrist in 1980. Um, yeah. 
and you know, he's weird. He's coming into his powers. Uh, and there are angels that have to stop him, but it is, I mean, profoundly gay, like not even queer. It is just extremely gay. I like the third time I saw a dick, I was like, this is a lot of dick. And like, that's not a read or like me being shady. I was just like, this is like quite a lot of dick. No, I mean, that's, that's, that's the most penises I've seen in a movie since the YMCA scene of can't stop the music. It really does make you realize like how we've regressed as a country and our culture. Cause I'm like, damn, you used to be able to see a dick. Like it was nothing. Yeah. Well, and also that this random low budget horror film that the director basically completely self-funded and filmed at his own middle school, <laughs> awesome. uh, which actually makes the shower scenes so much more funny. <laughs> So funny. Oh my God. Of course. Of course. That's a middle school shower. Yeah. yeah. But the, um, you know, it like this movie was made before AIDS, like before it became a mainstream yeah. thing. And like, it's fascinating to realize that things were really like for all of the anxiety and all of the horrific homophobia, these like movies like this were getting out <laughs> and finding their audience. And then they just went away because suddenly it was mm-hmm. terror. Um, yeah. Which I know is not a particularly novel insight, but I, it's just so absolutely wild as a film shaped object. Uh, it's very, it's a very weird film, uh, but I think it's like, it's super interesting. And I think it would be like a fun movie to put on at a party or something with your friends. Oh, and like, absolutely. Because kind of like, you know, 75% pay attention, but like, you don't have to be, you know, locked in fully. Yeah. Because you're not really, you're not going to understand what's happening in the movie any better by giving it a hundred percent. Right. Right. You need to pay attention only enough to be ready as soon as a scene comes on and you're like, what the fuck is happening? What the fuck is happening? Yeah. I definitely said that multiple times out loud while watching it. But again, I had such a fantastic time watching it. And I'm, I'm not mad that the lead actor who plays an incredibly good, creepy teenage gay antichrist, um, isn't more of an icon. Like he walks around in makeup and a cape and like underpants. I was thinking if they had made this film now, he would absolutely serve on the red carpet and become like a Twitter boyfriend. Oh, absolutely. He's like, people would immediately ship him with the Babadook. Absolutely. I want to see it. We should write it. Let's write it. (laughs) Gay teen antichrist and the Babadook have a meet cute. That's the title. Don't change it. First uh, thought, best thought. I know. Now uh, I got to find Frank Lelogia on Twitter and see if we can get the IP. <laughs> make it happen. <laughs> Guys, that's our episode. Thank you so much for listening. Please follow Meredith on the socials at Meredith L. Clark. Follow me at Allison Kilkenny. Follow the dang podcast at Light Trees and Pod. If you have questions, comments, concerns, you can go to, uh, well, you can email us. I hardly ever say that. Or you can follow us on any of the socials. Um, Some people have figured out you can message us on Instagram, which I support. Um, And I also have a Patreon, patreon.com slash Allison Kilkenny. If you leave uh, questions, comments, concerns over there, I'll read them on the show. I actually just remembered I should probably post because I don't think I put up a new uh, question one yet. So I'll do that so people feel like they can right in again and yeah thank you so much for listening and while you're at it get out there and cause a little trouble 